Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Achtung, Achtung, or hey there, buddy. Uh, welcome to We Have Ways of Making You Talk USA with me, Al Murray, James Holland, and John McManus. Let's get straight to it. Salerno, that's our subject today. James, you've been itching to talk about this with John, so I might sit back and go do my usual thing. And, Gosh, how interesting. Um, for the next 45, <laughs> for the 40, next 45 minutes. Sounds like a good job. <laughs> it's a yeah. great job. I'm, I'm happy <laughs> and it suits me down to the ground. I can, I can do it, put it that way. <laughs> So Salerno is Operation Avalanche, and, and and that's that's it's launched on the 9th of September, nineteen forty three, and this is this is in a way, Eighth Army has, has crossed the Straits of Messina um, a week earlier. Um, the announcement of Italy's surrender, armistice, has been made over you know the previous day, and the whole point is that this landing is much higher up the leg of Italy. So Eighth Army has crossed the Straits of Messina. It's been in the tow. It's taken Taranto. It's then Eighth Army is sort of spreading spreading northwards, A, to try and join up when the forces of the American, Anglo-American forces, although it's a US Fifth Army, land at Salerno, um, but also just sort of sweep up from the south. And, you know, anyone who's ever been to Italy will know that that's no easy task whatsoever um, because of the roads, because of the landscape, because of the mountains, all the rest of it. Um, and the lack of sort of general lack of infrastructure compared to a lot of other places, but but Salerno is just south of Naples, and and if you look at the map, you kind of think that's the southern Italy, and it is, you know, in terminology, it's southern Italy, but in terms of kind of the geography of it, it's about a third of the way up, and it's quite a long way, you know, from the toe of of Messina, to, you know, from from Reggio, across the Straits of Messina, all the way up to 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 Salerno, Naples. I mean, you know, it's kind of two hundred miles or something. I mean, it's it's, it's like a seriously big journey um which i know is nothing you know if you're driving across kansas or texas or something but but it is by european standards that's that's and it is by the in terms of an army trying to join another army in very treacherous terrain so suddenly avalanche looks like a really really big gamble and the problem is shipping because the demands on global shipping by this time are absolutely enormous and you can see that the allied high command the joint chiefs of staff have just got themselves in a bit of a bind because they've got these huge forces in the mediterranean they've just had this terrific victory in sicily you know italy is out of the war that's great fascism has been overthrown tick 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 but overlord the cross-channel invasion is planned for may 1944 obviously as we know it ends up being june but it's planned at this point for may 1944 and there are lots of operations going on in in the pacific you know 1943 as you will know more than anyone else john is a key year in the war in the pacific 
Yep. And what do you do? And it's not, you know, you've got you've got the Soviet Union going, we need your support, we need your help, you know, we need you to also put your your you know, your two penneth in and or your two cents worth, I should say, and and co- contribute. But unlike this Red Army, organizing Allied armies in Western Europe is really difficult because it involves amphibious operations. And as soon as you involve amphibious operations, your complication factor is just sort of, you know, times a hundred. Yeah. And and it's it's the amount of shipping, it's the amount of supplies, because it's yeah. not just getting there, it's then sustaining it once you're there. And so on the one hand, you've got this incredible um, logic and, uh, you know, we can get into Italy, we can get the Foggia airfields, which is this one bit of sort of flat area in the in the sort of central southern part of Italy, and we can get strategic air forces in, and then we can continue to tighten the noose around Nazi Germany with strategic bombing from the south, and it's closer to Ploesti, which is the only oil source in Romania that the Germans have. Um, uh, you you can you can draw off troops from the western front you can draw off troops in, in from the, from the eastern front as well just by being in italy you know all of these are really really big ticks so there's an obvious logic to it you you can see that the problem is how you actually make it work and make it work in a, in a, an effective way and make it lead to something productive you know i mean it's the logical next step after sicily why are you there if you're not going to go on to italy I mean, right. what's the point of all this? This is the point. So there is this. So there is this overwhelming momentum pushing the Allies into Italy. The problem is, the moment you start talking about going into into somewhere around Naples, either north of Naples or just south of Naples, which is where they end up going, you know, in the Salerno area, just south of the Amalfi coastline, this little bulge that sticks out. You've got to find the shipping to do it properly. And the bottom line is, by the time they go. On the 9th of September, having vowed never to have any reversals and having vowed to kind of, you know, really have overwhelmed before, say, before they do anything to minimize the risk, they're mounting an operation which looks suicidally, you know, craven. <laughs> I mean, it, it, it is so fraught with risk. And everyone always looks at it as, you know, God, they got there and they nearly got put back by the, by the Germans and they nearly got hammered. And everyone was surprised when the Germans turned up. My reading of all this that I've been doing over the last few weeks and, and months is that there was no surprise whatsoever. Uh, um, no. You know, they knew what Germans were there. They knew the potential threat. They knew there were hills there with guns in them. They knew that they were undercooked, and they knew that it was a massive, colossal gamble. And the amazing thing is, they still did it. And that is because the political forces at, uh, at play were so great that they couldn't back down. And that over that was overwhelmingly stronger than the potential threat of failure. I think that's my reading. Oh, of it. I think so too. Yeah, because Italy had to mean something. Well, well, exactly. And you can't remove political impetus from discussions of strategy. Because, because if war is politics by another means, then strategy is politics by another means, isn't it? You know, the idea that, there's, that there are two distinct arenas, um, I think is, rather, is, is unrealistic, isn't it? That's why Rome is so important. That's why you take Rome. You t- capital, cities, capital cities matter. You know, it's, it's why, it's why the, the, the Russians tried to take Kiev, not so, you know, in, at the start of the war in Ukraine, because because you decapitate the state, you changed, you completely changed the political landscape, which is after all what you're fighting over in in, in the first place. I, I mean, the thing is, is you're absolutely right though. Once you once you've done Sicily, well, well, what you well, you've got to go to Italy, haven't you? And then you and then and once you've gone to Italy, you want to hurry that up because <laughs> it's bloody difficult. And uh, well, yes, uh, but but you know, but you've also you've got these huge forces in the Mediterranean. And ever, you know, if you're an outsider looking in, you're going, well, we've got all these forces in the Mediterranean, we might as well use them. 
you know, we've got to use them. We've got to do something meaningful. We've got to get, you know, if we're going to go, we got to, we need to get the two two big cities of the southern half of, of Italy, Rome and Naples, and we need to get them in quick order. And if we get Naples quickly, then we've got a big port, which then means we can set up in, in Foggia really quickly. What we can't afford is to go up from the boot and slog our way up the mountains and only get kind of, you know, an inch up the boot, which is why they start thinking about terms of Operation Avalanche, you know, because this is a means of, of of negating that and, and already you're already got a big chunk of of italy just by landing in salerno well the- it almost reminds me of what we nowadays call mission creep yes um you know that <laughs> you get involved in something and then it just sort of metastasizes into something bigger um so in, in a way it's what the americans had worried about in getting involved in the in the mediterranean theater in the first place with north africa and then with sicily that it would lead to what the americans thought of as you know putting resources into tertiary operations. Yeah. And so Italy has to mean more than just the Foggia airfields. It has to mean a backdoor way into Germany, into the Balkans, um, into Austria. Right. And, you know, so, so, but it, but once you've taken Sicily, it really doesn't make much sense not to go to the, to the Italian boot. But then what does that really mean? And that's why Salerno is so problematic. And the reason they go to Salerno, so, the, the, so the, the beaches north of Naples are much better from a landing point of view because it's flat around there. It's not the, the, there's not mountains overlooking the invasion site. The problem is, is it's just too far for fighters. You know, they'd be there exactly. for two minutes and they'd yep. have to come back again. Yep. Whereas at Salerno, they've got kind of 20 minutes, half an hour there over the beachhead. Flying from mm-hmm. from northern Sicily and and southern Italy, very 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 southern Italy, but mostly coming from 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 Sicily and and uh, yeah from northern Sicily, you know from the from the Catania Plain or around there. That's where they're flying from, and and it's a long way. It it is a it's a good stretch up there, and that's the mm-hmm. constraint on it. And consequently, they've got these fantastic beaches, um, which are brilliant landing beaches. The flip side is you've got all these hills built in land. I mean, literally ten miles yep. in land. Five miles inland, there are all these hills in which you, you know, if you're Germans, you can put your guns in there. You can have OPs, observation mm-hmm. posts, and all the rest of it, and see, and see everything that the Allies are doing. But Jim, by way, way of comparison, um, how long do fighters have over Sicily in the invasion of Sicily during? The well, much, much more because because Malta is only sixty miles away, and from Cap Bon is, you know, they've got a decent exactly, amount. exactly. So their experience is: we need good, good and plenty fighter cover. And we, we're not going to, we don't want to stint on the fighter cover. Yeah. So that's what's informing this decision is that worked before, that's what we're going to do again. Uh, but, but, but it's one of those things that, it's yeah, one well, of those of things you, that you, you and I, I know, of course it's you a have, totally non negotiable. Exactly. But, but it's their operating method is, is you, you have the fighter cover. So that's, that's what you set yourself up for, which is yes, after but, all, but even well, but even Hitler in 1940 understands that. I mean, that's yeah, why yeah, he, yeah, 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 yeah. you know, it's it, it's such a basic tenet of sort of bottom line of amphibious warfare that you would have to have air air control over the landing area, um, and if you don't, you're not going to do it. So that that's why that's so important. But but the constraint is these these hills overlooking the Salerno invasion. I mean, immediately inland, it's pretty flat. But but it's very quickly the the hills. I'm saying ten miles. It's not even ten miles. I'm just, what am I thinking? It's like three or four. I mean, you know, it's 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 nothing. It's easy within range of observers. It's easy range of oh, of, of long of long term a long Any range artillery hemmed in basically. Yeah, I mean, well, you you know, actually, and you, I mean, that's Salerno's the best you can do. I mean, in terms of going as far north as you can with some semblance of an acceptable landing area, but with all its warts. But all you actually see this whole dynamic play out 
um, during the whole Giant 2 fiasco, which was the, the abortive uh, airborne drop on Rome that the Italians wanted before all this that almost gets the 82nd Airborne destroyed uh, before, you know, Maxwell Taylor and another guy go in there to deal with the Italians secretly and, and send the, the message back. We cannot drop an airborne division on Rhone. It'll be completely annihilated. Uh, so you're seeing right then all the warts that Italy features that you can't advance very far north, um, you know, for even for reasons even beyond air cover. And then, Jim, as you mentioned, the shipping takes us to another level of complexity, too. So, you know, this this invasion is sort of it's what you can do rather than what you yeah. should do. Oh, you and we should also say that Fifth Army has been building since Casablanca Conference, really. Mm-hmm. Um, that's yeah. when it's created. And um, um, Clark is put in charge. He's He's been obviously um, Eisenhower's number two for Operation Torch, the, you know, the invasion of Northwest Africa. And he's a very good planner and administrator, and he's chomping at the bit to be given a kind of field command. And and you know, frankly, he's earned that post. He, he's ambitious, and and he's he's been chivying Eisenhower for that post. But but you know, it's a perfectly reasonable appointment. I think there's no question why he shouldn't. But but the bottom line is, is it means that he's in charge of Fifth Army. He's got no combat command experience whatsoever at that that level. He has, in terms of organizing and, and, and being an administrator and a planner, absolutely, and he's ticked all those boxes. But actually, on the ground, no. So that's fresh. And he's only got three divisions that he can land. So he's got two British divisions, and he's got he's got two American divisions, the 36th Texans and the 45th Thunderbirds. But the Thunderbirds are in reserve, and the reason they're in, the, in reserve is because there's not enough shipping to get them all to the beach. Exactly. So when I was there and I and I was messaging Al while I was there, going, "Bloody hell, this is a hell of a long way." The difference, you know, from Paestum, <laughs> from Paestum, which is where the thirty-six Texans land, to the southernmost British landing, which is actually then abandoned. I think it's Green Beach. That's fifteen miles, and it's another and a river. It's another and a couple, river separates you, and, and a big right? river I mean, in the, the in between the, the two. The Seely River, yeah, the Seely River. So, exactly. what's the thinking there? Because I'm I'm struggling to find a. a they they debate over where they're go, where they're going to land, and they goes and we decided this, but they don't say why we decided this. I I've wondered the same thing. Is it congestion getting ships in and out, and that you need you need the, the beaches are well defined and t- 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 tidy for that reason? No, it it, it cannot be. It, it it cannot be. There's a road that runs parallel to the sea. And it's dead straight, and there's nothing on it. And in that time, there was no buildings on it whatsoever. There is no cover whatsoever, apart from a few kind of, you know, umbrella pines um, here and there, and the odd kind of, you know, building and villa or whatever. But there's there's literally nothing, and there's a, there's a Sealy River that divides the two halves. Otherwise, there's Salerno. But but there's no, there's absolutely no issue that they could, or that you could land three divisions on the Salerno front. Because because Paestum's not in Salerno, right? And I, I've wondered the same thing. And and I'm not saying this from an evidentiary viewpoint, but an opinion viewpoint. I've always thought they wanted a presence on both sides of the river, and they wanted uh, the 36th Division to be in the position to link up with Eighth Army coming up from that side. I'm not saying it made sense, but it seems like that's the only way you could sort of view this as the right thing to do so people either side of the river makes it easier to control the river basically it's it's sort of right a, if you control both sides of the river you, the problem of course is what happens is that <laughs> yeah. the river bisects you and and disperses your your strength yeah um, yeah at the I, very I, moment where you need maximum strength yeah now, exactly I, I, yeah I, if, if it's obvious that this is what the allies can do 
So that rather than what they should do. What, is it obvious to the Germans that this is what's going to happen next? That they're going to invade at Salerno? Yeah. It is, it's the obvious place in some respects, but it's the most defensible place. Yeah. Uh, you know, like Jim was saying, in terms of the high ground. Uh, I mean, it's... They've got the 116th just... Panzer there, and... Yeah. <laughs> or 16th, I think. The 16th Panzer, yeah, yeah, sorry. That's up in, yeah. in, in Holland, isn't it? Do the Allies arrive with a thunderclap of surprise, or are they, uh, you know, they do the Germans know exactly what's going to happen? Because it's, if it's obvious, the, the obvious place to land, then it's the obvious place to defend. And, it, and as, as Jim said, it, it's defensible. Yeah, it, it's absolutely defensible. And uh, the Germans sort of know what's about to happen. And uh, there's this big argument between Clark and Admiral Kent Hewitt, the uh, the naval commander. Hewitt's like, yeah, they're going to know we're coming by the time we're here because our ships are moving through the Mediterranean. They've got air, aerial reconnaissance. There's a lot of ways they're going to divine this in addition to knowing the obvious place to land. Uh, so we're really better off bombarding these targets before you go in. Yeah. Um, the, the, the ground troops were hoping to, to have the complete surprise. And it was a day, it was a dark, uh, you know, nighttime invasion, I think, what, three or four in the morning, something like that. Uh, so the hope was to achieve that kind of coup de main surprise, but this isn't, this isn't what happened. And so I think they probably would have been better off bombarding those targets beforehand. Take them, tip them off, won't you, if you shell them? Yeah. I mean, if you can get surprised, that's great. And if you can, you can really keep them off balance and get surprised. Well, then of course it makes great sense. But Hewitt makes, I think, really the salient point: You're, th- this isn't going to happen. Uh, they're going to know we're on our way, and probably to here. So I think when you balance that, it's better off to eliminate some of these targets that are going to cause you some serious problems from that high ground. Yeah, uh, this yeah. is what Hewitt was arguing, I guess. Yeah, I, and I suppose some of that. Some of the, there's some legacy of that in the Overlord plan that you bomb, they bomb everything. They bomb absolutely everything they possibly can bomb and run a big deception thing, even though there's there's obviously only two places you could possibly do it. I mean, it's it, as deception misdirection goes, Overlord is sort of fantastically successful because that's, you know, it's, it's heads or tails, isn't it, really, invading France from, from, from the British Isles? And it's a compromise. You know, you've had all those airstrikes and then you're going to have, what, about a 45-minute naval bombardment so it's sort of like we sort of have surprise in terms of time and place, but we're not going to have such a protracted bombardment that we yield that yeah. that kind of shock of the invasion. Yeah, yeah. Is that a thing that Clark then um, ruse later on, or you, you know, does he does he regret his decision to try and do it without a bombardment, or is Clark a man for regrets? <laughs> it doesn't strike me as a man for deep regrets, um, but I think he obviously he's a man of intelligence, and I think he probably realizes that it would have been better to bombard those targets. Uh, I would suspect that he wished that a lot of them were not there by the time things proceed as they do, because you have about, what, five, six days of some pretty serious crisis uh, in terms of the German counteroffensive. Well, one of these days we should have a big discussion about Mark Clark generally, but what I would say is I think he, you know, he, he does make mistakes along the way, but I think he learns pretty quickly. Um, and I think it's entire. You, you know, there's no general that doesn't senior high commander who doesn't make mistakes. The, the question is: is do you improve and do you learn from those and 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 do you progress? And and I think he does. I would also say that his handling of the of the situation once once they're committed is is quite impressive, really. You know, getting on the beaches and you know showing a real presence and courage and mm. and helping handle anti tank gun units and all this kind of stuff. I mean, I I think that shows. Resolve and, and commitment and, and courage and all mm. those sort of things. There's never any shortage of courage with him. And the truth is, he's been dealt a really, really tough hand 
the, the, the you know for all those who are involved on la- on that landing that is an absolute bitch of a of a, of a task because the odds just don't favor you you know we, we we've talked before about about sicily about you know how how montgomery particularly insists that, that you know he's you're, you're eliminating the risk and i'm a big fan of that strategy i think that seems incredibly sensible because you never want to be fighting over the same place twice you never want to lose lots of blood pointlessly um um and if you've got the resources and you have the capacity to make sure that your amphibious landing is is achieved with as little risk as possible you absolutely should take it because that's the most dangerous bit you know Everyone knows that the Allies have got overwhelming material advantage. It's just how how quickly can you bring that to bear? That's the million dollar question of Normandy. Um, but 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 that those those conditions are just <laughs> not in place in Avalanche. So so although it looks like the Allies are continuing their advance, albeit at a sort of at a slightly slow rate, you know, it's a there's a kind of inevitability about it. I would say that Operation Avalanche is is a is a moment of deep drama. And one of of incredible risk, which is out of all character of the Allies at that it stage. It is, of the war. and it, there's and Clark later on says, you know, the the whole invasion plan, uh, the forces he had, it was nothing even like what he felt he ought to have had um, going in there. And he'll later say, you know, but if if uh, he'll basically imply, if I wouldn't have done it, they would have gotten someone else who did. And and he thought, all right, I'm going to make the best of this. Quite revealingly, too, uh, General Kenneth Strong, who's uh, Eisenhower's very effective uh, intel officer by now, he will later, you know, make the opinion that this is the closest we ever came to an actual bona fide tactical defeat on the ground under Eisenhower's yep. command. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and I think that's that's definitely that's it right there, um, because those that five day period, maybe even six. I don't think there's too many other times like that from 1942 on for the for the Western Allies that you you can point to a kind of larger strategic defeat eventuating from a tactical reversal. You know, the other thing that blows my mind about uh, Salerno guys is uh, is just how ignorant the soldiers were of the geopolitical situation. Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's incredible. They're aboard ship, and they hear that Italy has surrendered. You know, Eisenhower's announcement. And they all rejoice, like this is the end of the war or something. And, and I'm like, guys, you came to Europe to fight the Germans primarily. Don't you think they're going to be there? I mean, it was the worst news you yeah. could get, actually. It really was. And they're acting like it's VE Day. It's just bizarre oh, to me. But, but John, but because the whole Italian campaign is so tainted and because of, of, of what follows, whether it be the bloody Rapido or, or whatever, it's always seen as I think I still feel it's sort of seen as a bit of a black mark against Clark. Whereas actually, I would say the fact that he pulls it off, okay, it doesn't matter that you know, and everyone sort of goes. I mean, I, I was read I read something yesterday or two days ago where it says said, had it not been for the navy and the air forces, they would have probably lost. And you sort of go, that's that's such a crass statement because the Allies are this tri-service operate that's how they work you know they are the complete package how else are they going to do it well how else do you do an amphibious landing i mean right you get your shipping exactly exactly (laughs) so i would have said a a much better phrase was despite um despite not having overwhelming material advantage they won the day Mm -hmm. yeah would be a better way of saying it and i would say that that that's no small achievement. And as the man who's in charge on the ground, I think Clark deserves a bit more credit for it, to be honest. Well, let's hold that thought. We'll take a break and we'll return 
while you're all reeling from James uh, sticking his neck out for Mark <laughs> Clark. Um, <laughs> we'll see you in a second. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger. Feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Velour XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Welcome back to We Have Ways to Make You Talk USA, where James Holland has left Second World War uh, uh, history enthusiasts stunned and incredulous that he should stand up for the vain, over-egged Mark Clark. I mean, it's his, it's his man crush on Mark Clark, I think, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... it is. I think we're getting, we're getting right here. It's only to be only to be rivaled by his uh, uh, man crush on Harold Alexander. But we're oh here. no, no, that, that's on, that's on a different plane. That's on a different plane. <laughs> Trust me. Um, uh, the, the thing is, uh, you know, if, if you are going to look at this the other way round, the fact that a general with no um, experience of combat experience who's an organizing guy, a staff officer, essentially. The fact that he's able to pull this off surely says something about the quality of the people leading the American army, training their officers, gluing the whole thing together. You know, not only have they got the right people in the right right jobs, because but the, but the mechanism for getting them there is pretty reliable. And after all, Eisenhower is similarly qualified in combat experience, and he's making the big calls at the top Surely we have to sort of place credit where it's due that someone like Clark, with his talent and his ability, can be discovered and then teed up to get the job right. I mean, who, how, is that, how has that come about? Why is, why is Mark Clark the right person, the right person? Well, right because person? you've had guys like him who are solid professionals. In his case, of course, West Point trained, and most of them were. Um, who have had enough of a commitment to that idea of soldiering and national service that they have hung in there through a long interwar period when there weren't a lot of opportunities, but there were enough that they could have a career that they could be learning at the Command and General Staff College, at the Army War College, um, with also sometimes um, uh, embedded with foreign armies or as military attaches or learning staff work or being mentored. There was a kind of mentoring tradition that you saw in the army. People like Fox Connor uh, were, were mentoring the Eisenhowers of the world. And, <clears throat> you know, so 
uh, it, this starts to pay off by the time of World War II when you have these very kind of ambitious, upwardly mobile and, and kind of hitting their sweet spot uh, at middle age professionals like Clark. Uh, like uh, Kent Hewitt uh, on the on the Navy side, who's also I think a fine commander on a lot of levels, um, you know, like Eisenhower, like uh, like Bradley, like Ridgeway, you know, there's just a lot of these folks who now have their kind of shining moment. Um, so I, I do think that that speaks well, and I also think that there's a there's a uh, an established tradition now of inter-service coordination, much less inter-allied, which adds a completely new component to it. Uh, that's that's working reasonably well. Hewitt and Clark work together reasonably well, is I guess what I would say. And, and what's the sort of intellectual temperature in you know in the American Army for for officers? Because the British the British Army has these sort of all these competing things of you know that there are there is a staff college and there are people that teach it and there are people who take soldiering seriously, but they're kind of in the minority. And it's non-you to talk shop and all that sort of stuff. And also the British Army has devolved to its imperial role. It's not thinking about it's not thinking about fighting European wars between the wars, if it could possibly help thinking about it. It would rather not. And it looks at things like there are armored armored warfare enthusiasts, but it tends to see that as the past, you know, the part of a disastrous, bloody past. That, that no one wants to go back to for, for all sorts of entirely sensible reasons. What, what's the intellectual t- tradition Mark Clark's coming well, through? Well, I mean, by now you've got all these established um, schools, you know, the, the Army War College, the Naval War College, the the uh, the National War College, the the Command and General Staff College. There, were, there was a lot of places where you could get this kind of postgraduate schooling. I think there was a great deal of respect for that because competition was very keen for slots in those in those billets, um, you know, where, where you were going to be trained for modern warfare. There is, I think, a respect um, among the, the, within the armed forces for people who have dedicated themselves to really preparing for the future and, and thinking about the future in a kind of relentlessly American way. Um, I, I think that's a big part of this, too. Um, and, and they've had to, to suffer some of the slings and arrows in larger popular culture in which especially in the 20s, um, the, the view of the people in the armed forces is not very positive on the part of most Americans. And so the peer pressure you would get on what we must say is sort of the elite side of this equation, officers in the Navy or the Army, um, the peer pressure you'd get is, hey, why aren't you out making money You know, as a lawyer or somewhere on Wall Street or running a business? Why are you doing this? You know, and it probably from your in-laws, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. <laughs> but but John, you know, you think about about someone like Monty or Alexander or, or, or any of these guys, you know, they're all brigadiers, major generals by the kind of middle middle of the thirties, nineteen thirties. Mark Clark's still a captain at the start of nineteen forty. Yeah, right. And he's and he's been a captain wow. since nineteen nineteen. Isn't that wild? So he spent wow. he spent oh fourteen years as a captain. Uh, as a wow. no, sorry, he's a he's a captain until nineteen thirty three. He's a, then a major. Just a major from 1933 until July 1940. Yeah, and then he becomes a half colonel. He then gets he jumps one straight to brigadier general in August mm-hmm. 1942. And by this stage, you know, by by November 1942, so a year after that, just a little year after he becomes a brigadier general, one star, he's a three star. You know, compared to your your British allies, yeah. if you're an American senior commander, you've spent an awful lot of time, and it's the same for Eisenhower, and it's the yeah, same for a- Bradley, and all these guys. Yeah, yeah. You know, they've been majors, and you know, at best, a half colonel um, throughout most. Yeah, of the I mean, 1930s. Eisenhower's a major under MacArthur for for years in the Philippines. I mean, <laughs> yeah. right. Yeah. 
you know, and, yeah. and then suddenly you're you're doing these huge leaps of rank, and suddenly from having absolutely nothing and be, being a kind of enough a, a comparative nothing in a comparatively nothing army, you're now um, a lieutenant general. Um, in charge of millions or a million strong army or a 500,000 strong army or something like that. You know, it's, it's, you know, these guys have to learn super quick. And, and in a way, the kind of the, the long gestation period has helped a lot of them. Because as you're saying, John, you know, they've had this opportunity to be nurtured and tutored and observe Definitely. and learn. And the guys who are good are really, really good. But you've suddenly got to kind of compress an awful lot into a very, very short period of time. Clark's advantage is that he's had this incredible lead in with the planning of the development of the army, working under McNair and people like this in the kind of, you know, early stages of, of the pre-war and first part of the war, then going, then having this dream ticket of going with Eisenhower to, to Britain and, and helping set up the US forces there and, and you know, with Bolero and all the rest of it. Then, you know, massive brownie points with Torch, which he is largely responsible for planning and which goes off pretty well, um, and in which he shows kind of, you know, fearlessness and courage by going in and talking to Darlan yeah, beforehand exactly. and all the rest of it, it and the submarine and all really Yeah, yeah, and all yeah. that. So he's, he, he's, you know, he's, he's ticking all the boxes as he goes up. But but the fact remains, at the moment of Salerno, suddenly he's in charge of still pretty big forces and plenty of forces behind him, waiting to you know for the shipping to allow them to kind of come into come into play in this major high risk operation, and he's got to deliver. And he 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 probably makes the wrong call on the bombardment, but he makes most of the right calls thereafter. I would well, say. he manages the crisis and, pretty well, and he's he manages the crisis. And, pretty well. and I think in terms of the criticism of Clark. Uh, I think one of the, the places it comes from is he's held responsible in some respects for the weakness of his core commanders, uh, Dolly, you know, during Salerno and later on Lucas during Anzio, uh, a kind of a throw him under the bus kind of kind of sense, whether that's fair or not. I, I'm not saying, but um you know, so but what do you what do you make of those two? Because they do seem a bit ineffectual. You know, Lucas seems like a good staff man, a good a good chief of staff kind of. He's figure, more. But... He, I really. This is the interesting. Dolly is out of his depth. You think he's good? Dolly is out of his depth. Uh, clearly, to me at Salerno, I, I don't think there's any question. This is a cavalryman who's not really adop- adapted to, to to modern war. Lucas, on the other hand, is a DSC recipient who has proven his courage in combat repeatedly. Who is thoughtful. Uh, and is deliberate, but the problem for him is he's not aggressive enough for what Anzio would call for later. If you're if you're landing at Anzio, why are you just landing to sit around? You know, why not grab the high ground? We just talked about Salerno's high ground, how important that is. Why aren't you on the Alban Hills? Why aren't you doing at least something? And I, Lucas just isn't the guy. So if you were to put Truscott there, we all think probably it's going to play out differently from that standpoint. Um, so I think Lucas is a different animal than Dolly, but I, I think that Clark is saddled with a guy in Dolly who's just not really up to snuff for this thing, you know. But again, this is all because they haven't been tested yet. I mean, they might have been tested in in kind of some form a yeah, long yeah, time yeah. ago in the First World War, but you know, Dolly, you don't know. It's it's a bit like Friedendahl in in Tunisia. Oh, it yeah. turns out that he's absolutely hopeless and completely useless. But you know there aren't quite the well, there are some signs actually. But but you know but until you're tested, you don't know. Right. You know Bradley comes out trumps. You know Patton, you start to see well what he can deliver. You know uh, um, it is a leap of faith to a certain extent. I mean you know again you know you're trying to kind of 
you know, there's a lot about Clark to like in the run-up to Salerno that makes you think, well, you know, if you're a betting man, you know, you you reckon the chances are he's going to be okay compared to others, but you don't know. Um, they've also been to they've been in Ireland, they've been in India, they've been in Palestine, they've been they've been doing uh, I- I- Iraq. Um, I- they've they've been, been retreating in 1940. They, yeah, they've been retreating in 1940 and in 1941 and in 1942. They've had plenty to plenty to be getting on with. So I mean, the, the fact that the fact that the American army, which is the sort of think tank blank slate, that, that it should produce people who are brilliant. Is is incredible. Of course, any army will produce people who, it turns out, in the clinch can't cope or can't deliver. And, uh, you know, uh, because after all, that's the final test, isn't it? It, it, it? It's when you're actually actually having to make those decisions in the moment. And what the enemy's doing as well can can very much uh, uh, yeah. disrupt your expectations. Well, that's true at the soldier level, too. Yeah, yeah, completely. It's a universal. Yeah. yeah, it's going into its first combat and 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 sort of learning along the way. Now, this is going to be a, a really uh, hard luck division on some levels throughout the war. And so you're seeing the, the sort of harbinger for that right at the beginning. The, the, the division is just spread out all over. I mean, only two regiments are landing initially, which is already kind of difficult um you know then the other one is separated from the other two and you know so you're 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 in a manage the crisis kind of situation almost from the beginning um you know the 36 division soldiers get a very tough tough uh, <laughs> tough grind and and then what ensues over the next six months five six months is just more absolutely of the same staggering it is it, it is staggering how they are able to kind of replicate themselves over and over and over again, despite gargantuan losses. Yeah, it's incredible. And, and, and despite having the heart of their division kind of ripped out, you know, their their their, their rifle regiments, it's just, yeah. Horrible. it's just astonishing. And the reason they're constantly flung into it is because you know there's a shortage. You know, there's not enough. And this is this is the problem with Italy that all the way through. You know, on paper, you know, they've got to a point where the allies can can force multiply by weight of material rather than manpower but that's negated in italy to a large extent or certainly in the winter of 1943 beginning of 1944 and so the huge amount of extra pressure is put on these rifle companies and these rifle regiments and battalions to do the hard yards and just a huge amount is being expected of them and it's the same problem at every step of the way with the Italian campaign, there's never quite enough to do what they need to yeah. do. And it's a bit like your six-month thing, Al. Al's got this theory that that, that, that the Allies <laughs> always got a six months ahead of where they, they want to be because, you know, th- there's, there's new technologies coming up. And in six months' time, it'll be brilliant. But they need to do it six months earlier. And so they haven't quite got enough. We've got to do it now. We can't do We've got it, to do when, it now. You know, when the thing's finally ready, yeah. Uh, that, that's absolutely the case with the Italian campaign. There's just not it quite is. enough. And, and and on paper, it looks great. Um, but the harsh reality of the of the front line, the sharp end, is, is a very different one. Yeah, and when you're talking about that level of terrain, that amount of high ground, lousy infrastructure in southern Italy, and you're facing an army that is just crackerjack in terms of uh, defensive doctrine, booby traps, mines. The geopolitical situation is an absolute and total mess. It's a civil war now that's going on in Italy, for sure. I mean, if the, if the war was bad for Italy from 1940 to 42, you ain't seen nothing yet. It's about to get way worse. Um, and so I think they would have, the Allies would have done well 
to study Napoleon's campaigns uh, in Italy and Hannibal's campaigns uh, along a lot of that same terrain. To, granted, it's different eras, but just to see the kind of headaches they're they're dealing with. And, and again, granted, they're not always coming in from the same direction, but a lot of the same things apply. Um, you know, so Italy was just always going to be a very tough animal. Um, and, and, and unless you had the will to prioritize it, which of course wasn't going to happen, you were going to end up with this six month thing. Um, and you, you were always going to have enough, but not what you really needed in order to, to produce serious results. And then when the moment comes for Dragoon, you're, you're stripped further back, aren't you? So you, you, you know, the, you don't get over the, you know, Alec, that's Alex's lament is you don't get over the Po when you want to threaten, threaten Southern Germany, um, within 1944 you know you don't do it until the following year because france has been prioritized and that i mean that's the most graphic moment when the when where the italian front fits into the allied strategic picture when dragoon goes ahead and obviously they make great leaps and bounds and that took that operation in itself is a great success sort of pushing into the but into the vacuum of that of, of southern France. Well, it's also an insight into the, the power play, the power dynamics by then. Um, in 1942 and 43, the British get much, maybe we'd even say most of what they want in relation to operations in that part of the globe. Uh, by 1944, I mean, obviously Churchill, as we all know, is a bitter opponent of Dragoon. I mean, he's trying to destroy it until the last minute. No, he, do, he doesn't get it because the Americans want Dragoon. Um, and it, that that could actually be another whole show that we do, because I think that's fascinating, too, because, I mean, it, what our various viewpoints is on that and, um, you know, the whole the yep. whole Dragoon thing. But uh, well, we should definitely talk about. Yeah. Dragoon. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, this is the thing that everything leads to something else to talk about. Um, uh, the, the, well, yeah, the, and we haven't really talked about the German response at Salerno mm. either. Eh? You know, that's a, that's a whole <laughs> podcast in itself. Oh, yeah. Yeah. We've, we've got that going, haven't we, Jim? Um, <laughs> yeah, well, I think I think there's a, there's nice seeds for something more about Salerno in a, in a few episodes time and then seamlessly moving on to Dragoon. And we can also talk about the, you know, the fall of Rome and the post-war, the Trasimino line and, and the, the whole arguments about Dragoon. You know what else is fascinating, too? The sociocultural side of it from the U.S. Army perspective um, of how, you know, Italy's complete degradation now and and uh, the, the and also the, the the social discourse part of this. I mean, the venereal disease rates, the 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 corruption, the you know, all of this kind of stuff that's happening now, especially along that West Coast as you get up and beyond Naples is an amazing story. Vito Genovese turning up. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, well last plenty to chew on. There lots is. to chew on for another time. Um, thanks everybody for listening. Um, uh, thanks for me and John and Jim, and we'll see you again soon. Bye. Cheerio. Take care. <laughs>